1: All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for
2: $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch.
3: Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Hmm.
0: This is an apostrophe podcast production.
1: Regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I was starving to death and I lived in a single apartment with a brand new baby in a basket on the floor. You get desperate. Jim Carrey. Every time Jim Carrey went to the movies as a kid, he noticed something strange would happen to him. He'd leave the theater a different person. He'd go in Jim Carrey and come out Clint Eastwood in a fistful of dollars. When he got home, he'd make his way to the bathroom vanity and stand in front of the mirror. But he wasn't looking for popcorn in his teeth. He was looking for the phantom from Phantom of the Paradise, or Henry Fonda in On Golden Pond, manipulating his face, trying to make the character he'd involuntarily inhabited over the last two hours appear in front of him. It wasn't perfect at first. His mother warned him if he obsessed over his reflection too long, he might see the devil but he'd furrow his brow, squint his eyes, tilt his head, and downturn the corners of his mouth in such a way he not only looked like Clint Eastwood, he became him. Jim Carrey says from the time he hit Earth on January 17, 1962, he was weird. His parents later told him that to get out of eating dinner as a toddler, he would go into a convulsive shake in his high chair until they could no longer convincingly stifle their laughs. His mother was a stay-at-home parent and visual artist from Toronto. His father was a Quebecois saxophonist and clarinetist, moonlighting as an accountant. Carrie was the youngest of four kids, and together, the family of six lived in Newmarket, Ontario. Many of Carrie's sweetest childhood memories involve three things—the couch, the television, and his father. Saturday nights were dedicated to The Carol Burnett Show. Sunday nights, they'd watch Rodney Dangerfield knock him dead on The Ed Sullivan Show. And his father would practically howl at the stand-up comics one-liners. Carrie had no idea what any of the jokes meant, but he'd laugh along because his dad was laughing. When his father went to bed, Carrie would wander to the vanity and do his best Rodney Dangerfield or Tim Conway in the mirror. (laughs) Carrie's dad was a masterful jokester. Carrie describes his father as the most joyful person you'd ever meet. He said he wrapped anyone who came over to their house in stories and jokes and send them home with pea stains after several declarations that Percy Carey had missed his calling. Carey's father got a real kick out of his weird son. Watching him practice bits in the mirror and developing the same appreciation for the ridiculous, he started rolling him out whenever they had company over as the evening's entertainment. Carey would do anything anything for a laugh, including throwing himself down the stairs or mime-choking on a piece of meat in front of his parents' dinner party guests. His father couldn't get enough. Gary says his dad really was his biggest champion. Lying at the bottom of the stairs, his dad never made him feel stupid. He told him he was brilliant. Soon, Carry brought his impressions to school, where he quickly became known as the class cut-up. It was incredible. By sheer force of comedy, suddenly he was noticed special. And by grade four, he'd amassed a repertoire of 120 different impressions. So, naturally, it came time to do what any 10-year-old would do. Get his career rolling. Carrie found an envelope and addressed it to The Carol Burnett Show at Studio 33, Television City, in Los Angeles. Inside, he put together a resume featuring an itemized list of every impression he had mastered, plus a clear mission statement to become a series regular. He dropped the letter in the mail and off it went from Southern Ontario to Southern California. A short while later, a letter arrived in the mail addressed to one Jim Carrey, and Carrey says as he tore the envelope, everything went in slow motion. Inside was a letter from someone Carrey later surmised was an assistant on the Carol Burnett show at that time. The letter thanked Carrey for his submission, but said the sketch comedy show typically scouted its talent via agencies. The letter then wished the 10-year-old the very best of luck and encouraged him to keep up with his impressions. And at the bottom was Carol Burnett's signature, stamped on. It was a tactfully worded rejection letter. But Carrie barely noticed. It was a rejection letter from Hollywood. Someone in Television City knew his name. Despite being the class cut-up, Carey also loved spending time alone, sketching and writing poetry. Carey said his bedroom was heaven to him. And his bedroom self was kind of a serious guy. He said he never rented comedies, only really heavy dramas. In grade six, Carey entered a speech contest. He chose to write what he knew about the history of comedy. In his speech, Carey covered all comedic genres, including a section on ventriloquism, where he pulled out a dummy and performed part of his speech without so much as an upper lip quiver. At the end of the contest, finalists lined up on stage as they announced the winner, Jim Carey. Carey was flabbergasted, but not as flabbergasted as his father sitting front row, when he heard his son's name announced, his dad screamed so loud, his dentures flew out of his mouth. Carrie said those flying teeth became his first on-stage victory. <laughs> when Carrie was 11, his family moved one hour south from Newmarket to Burlington, Ontario where his dad got a new job as a controller at a local company, and Carey was enrolled at a new school. Carey tested at gifted levels, so schoolwork came easy to him. He could finish a test before anyone else in the class, but he remembers one teacher labeling him as disruptive. You see, finishing fast meant he had to wait for everyone else to finish, and that was prime time to test out his bits. Grade 6 was tricky, but grade 7, Carrie said his grade 7 teacher was clued in. Noticing his inability to sit still, she made him a deal. If 12-year-old Carrie behaved himself throughout the entire school day and finished all of his work, he could have 15 minutes before the final bell rang to entertain his fellow students. It was a dream, so Cary collected spare moments throughout the day to methodically plan his bits, dinosaur impressions, and crazy teacher imitations. It was his first official stand-up set, a time slot dedicated to being funny. But come eighth grade, life for the Cary family took a very serious turn. When Carey was 14, his father was laid off from his company. And Carey says his father was too old to be hired for another white-collar job. The family moved to a small house in Scarborough, Ontario, next to a factory. And at that factory, the whole family, including the kids, was forced to take jobs to keep the family afloat. What crushed Carey was that accounting was his father's consolation career. When his true dream of playing sax or clarinet professionally didn't pan out, he boxed his instruments and settled for a steady, safe job that paid the bills. To have that not even work out was torture. Carey watched both his parents slip into a depression, and he watched himself become completely consumed by anger. He didn't understand why the world would punish his dad, this good, deserving human he worshipped. And Carrie started searching for outlets for that anger. If anyone so much as looked at him funny, he'd square up. After a full day at his new school, Carey would pull an eight-hour shift at the factory, sweeping hallways and cleaning toilets. It was exhausting. He started missing classes, and the formerly straight-A gifted student began flunking his courses. And by grade 10... Jim Carrey dropped out of high school. Carrey started working full-time at the factory, and he said it was a truly horrendous time in his life. He watched his father shrink, and Carrey and his brother started drinking. They'd punch holes in the walls of the factory, then come up with elaborate excuses for the damage, usually involving a rogue industrial sweeping machine. Carrie's parents hated the people they and their children were becoming. So one day, Carrie's father walked into the factory and quit on behalf of the whole family. They had nowhere to go, no income to pay rent. So they pooled their pennies and bought a VW camper van. The entire family filed inside. And Carrie says they essentially went camping for six months. They pitched tents at local campgrounds or willing friends' or family's lawns. And even though they had no kitchen, no walls, no money, they were so much happier than they'd been in months. And Carrie saw his father laugh again. One day, after a good howl at Carrie's latest characters, his father said to him, You know there are these things called comedy clubs where you can get up and showcase these bits you do all the time? Carrie's ears perked up, so he wrote a 15-minute set, a Frankenstein assembly of his favorite impressions from The Carol Burnett Show. His mother dressed him in a bright yellow polyester suit. It was the 70s, and she'd seen it on Donahue and Carey made his way to Yuck Yuck's Comedy Club, the hippest comedy club in Toronto, which, at the time, was located in the hippest area of Toronto, Yorkville. The 15-year-old took a deep breath and stepped on stage. But when he started his set, let's just say it didn't go as well as it had gone at home in the bathroom mirror. There was a particular tradition at Yuck Yuck's at that time— That when someone stumbled, they'd play the theme to Jesus Christ Superstar, Trial Before Pilot. And one line in particular, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Then when no recovery could possibly be made, the co-founder of Yuck Yucks, Mark Breslin, would take a second mic backstage and chant, totally boring, totally boring, totally boring. Alrighty then. The 15 year old bombed. He wouldn't step onto another stage for two years. Around this time, Carrie's mother was struggling with chronic pain. And when her dependency on pain medication crossed over into an addiction, her mental and physical health took a turn for the worse. So, when she was bedridden in pain, Carrie pulled on the only tool at his 16 year old disposal. He jumped up on the foot of the bed and pretended to be a praying mantis. He contorted his body and his face until she laughed hysterically. And that's when Carrie realized comedy wasn't just about getting a laugh, it was healing. If he could stand on stage in front of a crowd, he could provide a hundred people freedom from their concerns, like a ministry. With that shift in mindset, Carey returned to the comedy club, but not to perform, to observe. He went to shows and watched other comics. He watched the crowd, studying the art of the set and which jokes landed with which audience members. He prepared fresh material— And by age 17, he was ready to try again. (music) Carrie went back to Yuck Yuck's and performed a set, and this time, he killed it. The crowd was roaring, but it wasn't just his jokes. Carey was a visual performer. He had impossibly disjointed limbs and a face Rolling Stone writer Fred Shrewers later described as frighteningly mobile. He was unlike any other comedian on the Yuck Yucks program, and Mark Breslin knew it. That day, Carey became a regular player. Soon after that, he became a featured performer. Over the following year, Carey would become known as the funniest guy in Toronto. He started earning a modest living as a comedian, helping to support his family through his art. Then he landed a manager, and that manager essentially said to him, You can be the funniest guy in Toronto, or you can try your hand at the big leagues, Los Angeles. So Carey saved up his money and booked a one-way ticket to Television City. Then his agent called. The funniest guy in Toronto got a spot on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It's said Johnny Carson had the power to anoint comedic dukes and earls at will. A ten-minute set on Carson's stage could launch a lifelong career. So, ahead of Carey's American comedy debut, his agents thought it best to set up a showcase, a performance to present fledgling talent to industry folk. A venue was chosen, famous L.A. comedy club The Improv, and a date was set two days before The Tonight Show. There was buzz around Carey's performance— Through word of mouth, the funniest guy in Toronto soon became the funniest guy in Canada, and everyone wanted in on his debut. But as Carey took the stage, he said his set fell a little flat. Carey had never performed for industry types before. It was a different crowd, less eager to laugh. They weren't looking to ease their concerns with a night of jokes at the comedy club. Their concern was the jokes at the comedy club. When Carrie finished his set, people came up to him to pat him on the back. They were kind. Overly kind. Too kind. He said as he walked out that night, he couldn't help but feel it all slipping away. The next morning, Carrie got a phone call. His Tonight Show performance was cancelled. It was decided he wasn't ready. Carrie wandered to L.A.'s famous comedy club, The Comedy Store, feeling completely out of place. He said he looked like someone left a choir boy at Sunset and Vine. He knew the owner of The Comedy Store, Mitzi Shore, would be there that night, so he performed his heart out. But once again, he said it was an off night. The microphone literally fell apart in his hand. When he finished his set, Carrie didn't stop to introduce himself to Mitzi, who was standing at the back of the room. Instead, he blew right past her, out the door, and straight back to his motel. He gathered his things, and for the second time that week, booked a one-way ticket back to Toronto.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today.
3: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made ByHeart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at Byheart.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Alright, I'll do.
2: Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch.
3: Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
2: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft.
1: Back home in Toronto, Carey had nowhere to go, so he went back to Yuck Yucks, where everyone knew he had gone to LA to make it big. Each time he went on stage, the MCs would tease him. Our next act just got back from the comedy store in Los Angeles, where he had great seats. He started wondering if stand-up was really the be-all, end-all. Maybe he didn't have to squeeze himself into a box. Maybe he could be an actor, too. Carey went back to killing it regularly at Yuck Yucks. And that's when he was approached by David Hollef. Hollef was a manager for Canadian comedian Howie Mandel, and he took an interest in Carey. Holiff told Carey he had the talent to perform in L.A., so in 1980, Carey was swayed to try his hand at Los Angeles again. Hollef lined up some performances for Carey at the comedy store and the improv, the very places he'd bombed the first time around. But this time, he killed them both. This trip to LA couldn't have been more different from the first. Soon he became a featured performer at the comedy store. Carrie said if there were ever one door to open, that was the one to walk through. He was getting standing ovations after his sets. He got to meet Robin Williams. Then he met his idol, Rodney Dangerfield. The very comedian who'd first awakened Carrie's funny bone back in Newmarket, Ontario. The very comedian he watched with his father for hours. Dangerfield, like Carrie's father, got a kick out of his weirdness, and he invited Carrie to open for him. Soon, Carrie was opening for Rodney Dangerfield and Buddy Hackett. And at age 18, he decided to audition for the mother of all comedy gigs, Saturday Night Live. The 1980-1981 SNL season was an interesting one. It was the first season the cast would change since the show's inception five years prior, and the first year without its fearless leader, Lorne Michaels. Michaels would return by 1985, but for now, someone else was overseeing auditions. Carey chose two of his impressions to perform. One, Henry Fonda in On Golden Pond, And two, a post-apocalyptic Elvis. That's right. Carrie stood center stage, tucked his elbows into his T-shirt, wiggled his hands like flippers, and started singing blue suede shoes, hip thrusts and karate chops included. Judd Apatow, who was also on the L.A. comedy circuit in the early 80s, said the latter was polarizing. Sometimes it drove the crowd wild. Other times... It frightened them. Jim Carrey was rejected from Saturday Night Live. 19-year-old stand-up Eddie Murphy was cast instead. <music> Carrey spent much of the early 80s doing impressions and low-budget films. Then, at age 21, Carrey got a call from his agent He was booked on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, a second chance at the biggest chance he'd ever been given. On November 24th, 1983, Carey appeared on Carson's fabled stage. He performed a less frightening iteration of Armageddon Elvis. Then he told the crowd he probably spent his entire life staring in the mirror, but that he wasn't staring at himself. He was staring at Charles Bronson, James Dean, E.T., Bruce Dern, Michael Landon, Clint Eastwood, Jack Nicholson, and Kermit the Frog. A rapid-fire whirlwind of impressions. The audience almost didn't know what to do with him, but they couldn't stop watching. And pretty soon, they couldn't stop laughing. He rounded out ten full minutes With a round of applause and a thumbs up from one Johnny Carson, Carrie took a bow. Over the following years, Carrie continued to open for Rodney Dangerfield. He said Dangerfield stuck with him when other comedians might have jumped ship. After he'd spend 15 minutes crawling around the stage as a cockroach escaping from a vacuum cleaner, Dangerfield would say he was keeping it fresh. That gig took Carey to Vegas, where he became known for his impressions. But when Carey gazed forward 10 years down the line, he didn't like where his life was headed. He feared the apex of his career would hinge on Vegas, opening for lounge acts or magicians— a place where the art of mimicry could skew into gimmicky. So Carey made a bold decision to scrap his impressions. He said it was a terrifying call. His set, which by this point was foolproof, got the laughs and got the money. Enough money to pay his bills. Plus, everyone in his life was pleading with him not to look a gift horse in the mouth— He was earning a living in comedy. Some people try their whole lives to achieve what he'd achieved. And he was going to just throw it all away? But Carrie scrapped that program. He left Las Vegas and walked away from it all. Carrie started auditioning for acting roles in L.A. And in 1984, he was cast as the lead role of Skip Tarkenton in The Duck Factory. In a line, the comedic adventures of the employees of a hard-luck animation company. The brand-new NBC sitcom had a recipe for success. With equal amounts money and buzz behind it, The Duck Factory was slotted right between Cheers and Hill Street Blues, Thursday nights, prime time. This was it. He'd made it. His gamble paid off. They started filming the first season, and Carey called his parents. He told them he got a big show on NBC and invited them to come live with him. He was making Hollywood sitcom money now. He would be the hero son and support his hardworking parents. But as they filmed each episode, Carey noticed none of his lines were particularly funny. He realized the person that hired him didn't even know he was a comedian. It appeared they just wanted a nice guy. His parents settled into his guest room. Then, Carrie got word from NBC. The Duck Factory was closing indefinitely. It was canceled after 13 episodes. Carrie continued supporting his family until he couldn't anymore. He was forced to sit his parents down and tell them his valiant plan to provide for them had failed. Carrie says it was a horrifyingly painful moment in his life. His parents moved back to Canada. Carrie went bankrupt. (laughs) Carrie was depressed. He got himself a roommate, who recalls that time in their lives as one punctuated by chili and white bread. In 1985, Carey auditioned for the role of Ferris Bueller, alongside John Cusack, Tom Cruise, Rob Lowe, Michael J. Fox, and Matthew Broderick. But, of course, he didn't get the part. So that year, he decided to take another shot at auditioning for Saturday Night Live. Dana Carvey was also in Burbank that day, doing his second audition for the show. Carvey said you pour your heart out in front of the SNL decision-makers and a few leftover cast members from the season before—Dennis Miller, John Lovitz, Nora Dunn—and you get no laughs. They've seen it all. But when Carrie took the stage, it was like nothing Carvey had ever seen— Carey was balancing straight in the air on his pinky finger. It was wild. After their auditions, the hopeful comedians were seated in a waiting room, and Phil Hartman turned to Jim Carrey and said, well, you'll get it, or at least a featured player. Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, and Kevin Nealon were cast. Jim Carrey was passed over a second time. Lorne Michaels said he never attended a Jim Carrey audition. The first time, he'd just left. The second time, he'd just returned and was learning to delegate. All he knows is someone else watched Carrey balance on his pinky finger that day and said Lorne wouldn't like it. Carrey walked away from stand-up for another two years. In 1987, Carey says he got the bug again. He was done lying around. He was done waiting for other people to let him through the gilded gates of comedy. He would make things happen for himself. He started going to comedy clubs and improvising every night. And Judd Apatow says he came back with a vengeance. He stopped doing impressions and started doing characters. Apatow says he was a rambling madman with a microphone, crying on stage one minute and crawling into a baby grand piano the next. He said he would kill for a few moments, then bomb for a while, then kill again. But he was getting heckled aggressively. People didn't understand why this masterful impressionist wasn't doing impressions. He wasn't giving the people what they wanted, and the people let him know. But Carey said people had no time for Bob Dylan when he went electric. This was Jim Carey plugged, and it was sink or swim. <music> for six months, Carey challenged himself not to repeat a single joke. He figured the experiment would only make him stronger. But he said every night he would go up unarmed and bleed in front of the crowd. He went to bed mulling over his set with a fine-toothed comb. What did his audience need from him? He became a comedy detective. Then one night after a show, he shot up in bed. He remembered being a little kid, desperate to make his mother laugh. And he remembered, like his mother, all these people come to his shows to feel free of their concerns. And the best way to provide that for them... Was to be free of concern himself. So he started his next show with a new line Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How are you doing tonight? All righty then. When he didn't wait for the audience's answer before moving on, he appeared to be free of concern for them. And they, in turn, became free of concern themselves. In 1987, Carey married his girlfriend, actress Melissa Womer, at a hotel in Santa Monica. And that same year, Francis Ford Coppola saw Carrie in a show. And he liked what he saw. So Coppola cast him in his latest feature film, Peggy Sue Got Married, alongside Kathleen Turner and Nicolas Cage. Carey would go on to be rejected for the role of Edward Scissorhands, though he made appearances in a few more films. The Deadpool in 1988, which starred Clint Eastwood. Here he was working with one of his tried-and-true impressions for years. He also did Pink Cadillac in 1989. But Carrie says by that point, he and his wife were practically starving to death. They were now living in a bachelor apartment with a brand-new baby basket on the floor. Carry was doing three comedy shows a night up the Sunset Strip. He'd walk out of a comedy club, go to the top of Mulholland Drive, sit on the side of the road, look down at all the lights, and dream up his life. He wanted to be a great artist. He wanted his work to last. And he wanted to be a millionaire. So Carry pulled out his checkbook. He wrote a check to himself for acting services rendered dated five years away, Thanksgiving, 1995. The amount? $10 million. Carey said everything he'd ever wanted in life, he manifested. He became the funniest guy in Toronto, opened for Rodney Dangerfield. He performed on The Tonight Show. So he thought, why stop now? He tucked the check in his wallet. But as each year passed... He watched it deteriorate. One night after a set, Carrie was approached by comedian Damon Wayans. They'd sort of clocked each other over the years through the L.A. stand-up circuit. Damon asked Carrie if he'd auditioned for something. He said, Come meet my brother. Damon's brother, Keenan Wayans, had seen one of Carrie's SNL auditions and noted Carrie was an outlandish guy. Together, the brothers were working on a new sketch comedy show for fledgling network Fox. The show would be sort of the anti-SNL, with a mostly black cast. They were on the hunt for standout talent, auditioning 150 comedians for the part. Carrie didn't have any characters prepared, so he started improvising with the brothers. He said he completely let loose. At first, he was a Scotsman. Then he was a pirate. Then he was Nipsey Russell. And the brothers were falling down laughing. So they invited Carry back for a second audition, this time a stand-up set at the Comedy Store. Also auditioning that night was Adam Sandler, David Spade, and Rob Schneider. The Wayans said Carrie's set was so wildly alternative, these crazy characters that were almost more performance art than stand-up. But it worked. He was hired. And the Wayans' new sketch comedy show, In Living Color, premiered in April of 1990 on Fox. 22 million people tuned in to the In Living Color premiere. The New York Times called it one of the freshest shows of the year. And after its first season, the series won an Emmy Award for Best Variety Series. It would be nominated again the next year and the year after that. Fox reportedly wanted a sketch show that would push TV limits and stand out against the other networks. And boy, did they deliver. Soon, Carrie achieved water-cooler notoriety, written about in the Times, Variety, the L.A. Times, and the Chicago Tribune. Meanwhile, across town, the good folks over at Morgan Creek Productions were looking to produce a film with, quote, wide comedic appeal, something manically lowbrow to compete against the highbrow comedies major studios were popping out like Tic Tacs the company was pitched a script that piqued their interest. What if a pet detective is tasked with solving the mystery of the missing Miami Dolphins mascot, a bottlenose dolphin named Snowflake? They needed a lead actor who could do weird. They reportedly tested Judd Nelson, Alan Rickman, and Whoopi Goldberg. Rick Moranis and David Alan Greer turned them down. Then someone suggested the crazy guy from In Living Color, Jim Carrey. Carrey said he knew this movie was either going to be something that people really went for or was going to ruin him completely. He said his character had to be unstoppably ridiculous, the 007 of Pet Detectives. He helped the writers do rewrites on the script. And in 1994, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, was released. That same year, Carey starred in The Mask and Dumb and Dumber. Three films that raked in worldwide critical acclaim, a Golden Globe nomination for Carey, and an astounding $700 million at the box office. People couldn't stop watching, and they couldn't stop laughing either. Carey became the most talked-about comedic actor in television and film. But just as Carey reached the comedy apex his father, his biggest cheerleader, passed away. At his father's funeral, Carey reached into his wallet and slid out the $10 million check he'd written for himself five years earlier when he was surviving off chili and a white bread career, and he gently laid it into his father's casket. That year, Jim Carey, the comedian who once lived in a VW camper van, who was called weird and totally boring, rejected by Saturday Night Live more than once, passed over for parts, crucified on stage, and left wondering how he was going to feed his family, became a 10 million dollar per picture movie star.
2: in 1978 I was lucky enough to be in the audience at Yuck Yucks that night a young kid was the featured performer he looked like he was about 17 but his act was amazing not only did he do impeccable impersonations his face could contort to become the face of the impression he was doing that kid was Jim Carrey you knew instantly he was destined for big things. But hearing his story, it's unnerving to realize how difficult that journey was for someone as talented as Kerry. Three decisive moments jump out to me. The first is that Kerry chose to trust his weirdness. It happened that night he got up on stage and decided not to do impressions. Impressions came easy to him. They were a crowd pleaser. He was almost in a league by himself when it came to impressions because he nailed the voices and the faces. But instead, he chose to embrace his weirdness. He got booed, but he was willing to get booed in order to stay true to himself. That weirdness would eventually be his ticket to stardom. The second thing that strikes me is a theme we see so often in our series the importance of having champions. Carrie's father championed his son's weirdness. Rodney Dangerfield let Carrie be Carrie. And the Wayans brothers not only encouraged Jim's eccentricity, they showcased it. The third key to Jim Carrey's success was the fact he visualized his goals. He envisioned himself becoming the funniest guy in Toronto. He imagined working with Rodney Dangerfield. He pictured himself walking onto the Tonight Show stage. And when he was at his lowest point, he wrote a $10 million check to himself dated five years into the future. All of which came true. When you visualize a goal, it becomes a pulsating destination in your career GPS. The route may have detours and speed bumps, but that tracking system will always drag you back on course. Jim Carrey once said, It's better to risk starving to death than surrender. What he meant was this. If you surrender your dreams, you surrender your future. And if you surrender your future, how happy will you be? Visualize your goals, find your champions, stay weird, and never, ever give up.
3: James Eugene Carey Ace Ventura, Pet Detective The Mask Dumb and Dumber Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind How the Grinch Stole Christmas The Cable Guy Liar Liar Bruce Almighty Fun with Dick and Jane Me, Myself and Irene The Truman Show Yes Man well, alrighty righty then.
1: The Rejection Podcast is an Apostrophe Podcast production and is recorded in our Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Our director is Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. We regret to inform you, our producer is Debbie O'Reilly. Our theme music is by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. All music is provided by APM Music. Major sources for this and all episodes are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like rejecting Nick Offerman from season two. Offerman was also rejected for his weird brand of comedy. He was ready to give it all up until he got a phone call in the sporting goods parking lot. Follow our network on social at apostrophe pod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Why don't more infant
3: formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim?
2: Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable.
0: Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.